your prayer and your reading. Uh, a couple of years ago, I used to tutor a couple North Korean students with a friend. And uh, once a week, we would, would gather in one of their apartments, and we'd, we'd eat dinner together, eat supper together, and then we'd go over a lesson in the evening. Uh, but this apartment also functioned as a safe home. When people had, uh, who had just escaped from North Korea needed a place to spend an evening, this apartment was open to them. And so some nights you'd come over, and there'd be an unexpected guest. I'm an old man um, or, or a young lady. And one night in particular, I can remember a young woman with an infant child. And she didn't join us sitting at a kitchen table, at a chair. And she didn't feel comfortable joining us sitting on a floor cushion in the living room. She just sat on the floor, back up against the wall, away from everyone. Although she was now safe, set free, she didn't fully realize yet how to, to live in that freedom, how to live in that safety. And, that, and that's a challenge that her and, and all North Korean defectors have to go through. Now that I have escaped from tyranny and darkness and have freedom, how do I live? How do I get on with my life? And in a similar way, every Christian must deal or wrestle with the same problem. We may not have experienced the same uh, physical hardship as many North Koreans have, but, but all of us do carry physical and spiritual scars still. And spiritually speaking, through the work of Jesus Christ, we who were once part of the kingdom of darkness have been brought into the kingdom of light. And so now, in the kingdom of light, receiving salvation through faith alone, how do we live? How do we live as Christians? And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans for the first 11 chapters has really been unpacking and clarifying the gospel, the good news of salvation. He has been describing how we were once lost, enslaved. Uh, we were hopeless, enemies of God, condemned to suffer the wrath of God. But through Jesus, we have now experienced freedom from the tyranny of sin and of the devil. We have received salvation. And so the pressing question emerges. So now we're forgiven. We have come to faith in Jesus. Now what? How do we live? And this is where our scripture confronts us today. In these, these two simple verses in Romans 12, Paul begins to answer and really sum up the entire Christian life. How then do we live? How do we go on in our freedom as Christians? And my hope is as, as we look and we examine together these three verses, we will see three crucial truths that we must understand if we're going to understand our Christian lives and how we should live. And so our first truth is that our life as believers is rooted in the gospel. Our life as believers is rooted in the gospel. Look with me at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do you see that, that word, therefore? Uh, a good rule of thumb is when you see it in Scripture. Ask, what is it 
therefore. Because it means as a consequence. Because this is true, this then follows. So we, we normally don't talk like this in, in our casual conversations, but the kids are staying over with grandma. Therefore, we can have a quiet evening all to ourselves. The water has been turned off. Therefore, we can replace the toilet and not flood the house. So the Apostle Paul, who's been clarifying the gospel for 11 chapters, is saying, therefore, in light of what God has done on the cross through Jesus for us, this is how we live. This is how we go on. And, and listen to some of the ways that, that Paul has been describing what God has done for us, God's mercy. We who were once, Paul says, enemies of God, hardened, hopeless, deserving of wrath, through the mercy of God, through the work of Jesus Christ, we have had the love of God poured out into our hearts. We have been saved. We have been justified, that is, declared righteous by God. We who were enemies now have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God, received eternal life, forgiven. We, we have been set free from the law of sin and death, delivered. The Holy Spirit of God now lives and indwells in us. And we are united to Jesus. We who are orphans have been adopted by God. He is our Father. Redeemed, predestined, called, glorified. We have been given an advocate in Jesus who right now this morning intercedes on our behalf. And we have been made co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying we should live with all of this in view. This is the, the foundation on which the Christian life is built. The Christian life is rooted in the mercy of God and the gospel of salvation. Or, put another way, the Christian life is not about trying to earn God's approval for salvation. A lot of people outside the church and a lot of people in the church, we can, we can struggle to understand this. The Christian life is not God saying, perform, so I'll love you. Rather, it's God saying, I have already loved you, and I saved you through the work of my son, Jesus Christ, while you were even my enemy. And now that I have saved you, now that you are mine, now I will turn you into something lovely. Now I will make you someone holy. For I, your God, am holy. Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, he, he contrasted our human love with God's divine love. Luther says that, that we love what we find pleasing to us. And think about your, your spouse or your, your hobbies, your, your sports team. We are drawn to them because they please us, at least at first. But God's love is different. God's love is creative, Luther says. Well, what does that mean? Luther says that God's love does not find, but creates 
that which is pleasing to it. We are not saved because God was impressed with us, that he was pleased with us. No. While we were his enemies and ugly, God loved us and saved us. And now having saved us, he is going to continue his work in us through the Holy Spirit to present us holy and pleasing to him. Think think of it this way. Imagine a good father, a loving father. When his child is born, the father loves the child. The the child should not need to grow up worrying about, is dad going to love me? I I have to perform really well today, and and that way I can earn his love. I'm going to make him love me. No. The child knows in in a good home that I'm already loved. And a loving father, a good father, will also teach their child how to live well. And so, in a similar way, safe and secure in the love of our Heavenly Father, God is now intent on teaching us how to live. And if we truly grasp this, the implications are more than we can talk about today, but the two common ones. It will challenge a laissez-faire spirit, let it go, and it will challenge a rigid legalism. You see, the, the laissez-faire, the, the, the let it go, the maybe more technical phrase, antinomian, anti-law spirit, says, loosen up, man. God is love. He loves to forgive. What's the big deal? Why do we got to talk about sin and these do's and, and, and don'ts? Just we're, we're free now, so just you do you. And, and the consequence of this is that it creates a casual, cheap grace. It demands and expects nothing from no one, and so it changes no one. And it weakens and sentimentalizes the love of God. God's love loses its holiness. But when, when we recognize the mercy of God, we realize at least two things. So, so the, the gospel is free to me. It is free to all who believe. We don't pay God for it. But this gospel cost Jesus his life. It is a costly grace. And while this grace is free to us, having believed this truth, I now belong to someone else. I belong to God. I live for him who died for me. And maybe if you're a bit like me and can be a bit prone more towards legalism, the heart of the legalist says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll perform, and if I perform well, well, God will be pleased with me. He'll, he must let me in. You know, I've done my part. Now you do your part, God. Or maybe sometimes it can manifest itself. Yes, yes, I know. I know Jesus died for me. I, I believe that. I know he paid for my debt. But you know what? I really hate being indebted to someone. So, you know, I might not be able to pay him all back, but I'm going to try to pay him back as much as I can. He'll be impressed with me. And the fruit of this is often pride or despair. Pride when we think we're doing well. I had a great week. God is going to be so impressed with me this week. Or despair. Am I even a Christian? How could I have done that? And it leads to a spirit in the Christian life that becomes joyless and lifeless. It becomes stale. 
But when the legalist grasps the gospel, their focus is turned away from themselves, away from their performance, and to the cross. And they recognize that God is not a CRA agent collecting taxes to be paid off. He's a loving Father teaching us how to walk. And so Paul is saying here, look to the mercy of God. This is the ground on which we live. This is the road on which we will walk through the entire Christian life. There's no graduating from this. And this leads us to the second truth that Paul wants us to understand. Our lives as believers requires total dedication to God. Our life as believers requires total dedication to God. Look again with me at verse 1. See how Paul says, I urge you brothers and sisters. Paul does not say, hey guys, I'm just going to throw this out here. Hey, you know what? It's a really great restaurant I recommend. I recommend you live this way. No. It's not optional. Paul urges, he calls, he implores. It is not a, a higher calling that the special Christians live like. This is ordinary, basic, everyday Christianity. Continuing in verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer our bodies, your bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So we, we offer to God our bodies as a living sacrifice. So, so notice, that what is the purpose of your life? Why do you live? Now that we are free and forgiven in Christ, we live for God. We don't live for ourselves. We, we don't live so the people at church think, he's a great guy. She is a really nice woman. It's not about enhancing our reputation or creating a business network. We live for God. And what, what do we offer him? Now, this might puzzle us. We offer him our bodies, young or old, as they are. It, it, see, it's not about God just wanting 10% of your income or, you know, two and a half hours on a Sunday morning of your time. It's not about a checklist of things you need to do and things you need to avoid. He's after you, all of you, and all of me. And think of this. Where do you go without your body? I was thinking, I don't think I've ever gone anywhere without my body. So whether we're in the classroom or a business meeting, whether we're in the living room or in the dorm, whatever we do and wherever we go, we offer our bodies to God as what Paul says, as a living sacrifice. Now again, this could confuse some of us because we see that word sacrifice, and some of us will think primarily of sacrifices, I need to give something up, get rid of something. Uh, like perhaps Remembrance Day wasn't too long ago, we, we honor the sacrifices our veterans made. Sometimes we'll say the greatest sacrifice, they gave themselves up. And others of us will think back to the Old Testament sacrifices where, where animals were sacrificed to God for sin. But we know that we don't sacrifice animals for our sin anymore because Christ is the true sacrifice for our sin. But other animals in the Old Testament were sacrificed to God not for our sin, but as a, a burnt offering, as a way of consecrating yourself to God, a way of showing your gratitude, your devotion to God. 
So while sacrifice does mean, you know, give, giving something up, here, the way the Apostle Paul is using this word, it's much more about expressing something for God, about devoting or consecrating ourselves to Him. I don't know if this will make sense, but, but imagine two husbands, and they, they genuinely love their wives, but they also really love going to the pub every evening. They love watching the leaves, they love smoking a cigar, and uh, this doesn't really please their wives too much. Shocker, I know. But the, these two men, the first man says, okay, okay, honey, I will sacrifice smoking for you. I will give up the cigars. The second man says, you know what, honey? I'm not going to go to the pub tonight. I'm going to stay home, and I'm going to spend the evening with you. The first man gave something up for his wife. Genuine love. The second man also gave something up. But more importantly, he gave himself to his wife. And so like the second husband, God wants us to give ourselves to him. To offer ourselves wholly and pleasing to him. For, as Paul says, this is our true and proper worship. What does that mean? Well, it means that, that God wants us to offer all of us, including our physical bodies, to Him. Now, this may be a bit different for us, but in the ancient world, that would have offended many people. Because a, a common train of thought was physical bodies, they're a bit dirty. Physical bodies are, are the lesser. This physical world is the lesser. And, and the greater is the spiritual, the ideal. So the idea that God would want my physical body, whew, and in our modern world, when we think about it, this can also quite be, quite be offensive, can be quite offensive. Because in our modern world, we often view our physical bodies as something to be worshipped in and of themselves. Or, my body is really a tool. A tool for my desires or my self-expression. The idea that God wants me to offer it to Him in worship, that can be offensive. But God is saying, as a result of the gospel, our bodies matter. Our bodies are part of our salvation. When Christ comes again, there will be a bodily resurrection. And God is saying that now that we are saved, we are to use our bodies in our life to worship Him as a way of adoring Him and magnifying Him. So, so whether we are cutting someone's hair, or we're typing data entry on a computer, or we are relaxing around the dorm with our roommates, our bodies are an expression of our devotion and worship to God. How does that look in life? Well, one picture of how that looks is Paul gives us in Colossians 3. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, implying God's work in the gospel." Clothe yourselves. Do you hear that? That's bodily language. Clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. 
So we, we offer our bodies to God in worship when we come home tired and weary from work. And rather than responding in anger or rage, we learn to respond in gentleness and love. We offer our bodies to worshiping God, to God when we are tempted to search that website that we know we shouldn't, or we are tempted to go to that part of town which really tempts us. Rather, we respond, we learn to respond with purity or self-control. When, when we are overwhelmed and we're tempted to binge on food or escape through binging on Netflix, or, or maybe we, we obsess over, over dieting or exercise or sports, we offer our bodies to God in worship when we learn forbearance, when we learn contentment in Christ. We, we learn that we can enjoy God's good gifts, but not be mastered by them. Not go back to the old way of life and be enslaved by them. This is what it means to offer ourselves holy and pleasing to God. Well, you still might be thinking, okay, but how does that work? Because if we're honest, whether you are 15 or 95, whether you have been a Christian one month or 50 years, we all struggle with sin every day. So how do we grow? How do we make any progress in this? Well, this brings us to our third and final point. Our life as believers is fueled by the truth of God. Our life as believers is fueled by the truth of God. Look with me at verse 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, the pattern of this world refers to the beliefs and the behaviors of this world that are bent against God. Back in Romans 1, when Paul begins this letter, he, he talks about the thinking of this world is futile. The, the world's thinking is futile because it doesn't acknowledge God. It doesn't give Him honor. Rather, it, it suppresses its knowledge of Him. It denies Him. It, it exchanges the truth for a lie. And then, so the world begins to worship created things rather than the Creator. But Paul says, we do not conform to this. So how does this uh, apply in our day? So in our day, this isn't everything, but some of the way our world thinks might be, hey, you know what? Live for yourself. Find your own truth. Be true to you. Look, look within. That's where the answers are. Look within. Find your real authentic self and live out it. Can't be wrong if it feels good, can it? Okay, maybe there's a God, but if there's a God, there's got to be more, more than one way to him. I mean, he can't be so narrow-minded, can he? And the world tempts, when we, when we go out into the workplace and in the classroom or when we're scrolling on our phones, the world is going to try to press and conform us to its ways of thinking and living. But Paul is saying, do not be conformed, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when Paul says transformed, here it means something ongoing, continual. It's not something I did once, now I'm good, never need to do it again. It's a bit like caring for plants. I'm not an expert on caring for plants, so uh, apparently when you plant a seed in the soil and you water it, apparently you have to do more than just that. You actually have to go back and you have to make sure the plant has sunlight 
and you have to keep watering it for it to grow. And over time, that seed, if cared for properly, will transform into a rose or in a farmer's field into corn. In a similar way, our lives will be transformed to the ways of God by continual renewal of our minds. So what we feed our souls, what we let linger in our thoughts matters. It actually directly correlates with our bodies. And so while there will be visible signs of this transformation over time, people are going to start to notice differences, even small differences. It's actually something that happens from the inside out, a little bit like how uh, a caterpillar is transformed from within the cocoon before it becomes a beautiful butterfly. Our hearts, biblically speaking, our hearts, our inner self, our inner being, becomes transformed and it reveals itself in our conduct, in our character, in our words. And this inside-out transformation happens by reminding ourselves of the truth of God, of what Paul has just talked about. Peter, in 2 Peter, he'll phrase it a bit differently. He'll, he'll, same meaning, but he'll say that we remind ourselves we grow in the truth by growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This happens in church when we gather as corporate worship together. It happens in small groups. And, and think about this. So the church that Paul is writing to in Romans, many of them could not read. They could read, maybe they couldn't read very well. And Paul's saying to these people, you need to renew your minds. So sometimes renewing your minds happens when we encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We remind each other of the truth of the Word of Scripture, where we listen, we feed on truth, God's truth. It happens when we, in our personal readings, in our devotions. It also happens in an everyday battle because we're always speaking to ourselves. Right now, you're speaking to yourself. We need to learn, we need to train ourselves to preach God's truth to our hearts. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. So we learn, as this happens, we learn to see God and this world and ourselves according to God's truth. And we measure what we hear or what we see against God's truth. So maybe when the world says that, you know, true happiness lies in living for yourself, doesn't this just look so great? We remind ourselves, no, true happiness is found in living for God. When we inevitably sin and our hearts begin to say, oh, you are such a failure. How could God ever love you? Are you even a Christian? You're not a Christian. We learn to say, well, yes, I did sin. But my Savior knows that, and He died for me. So my sin is taken care of. And I know He loves me. His love will not let me go. And what is the result as we learn to do this? Paul says in verse 2, Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will we are not going to be sinless or perfect on this side of heaven. 
We are not going to be able to know all that there is to know. We are finite creatures. And there is just some mystery we cannot understand. But as we begin to offer our bodies and worship to God, as we renew our minds in God's truth, we are going to grow in our ability to discern and to desire from our hearts God's truth and God's moral will. We are going to begin to be attracted to goodness, to holiness, to what is noble, what is pure. We are going to be learned to be pleased by what pleases God. And that's really a summary of the whole Christian life. Now that we have come to faith in Christ, that's how we live. We look to the cross. We never graduate from looking to the cross. We see God's great love and mercy displayed in His Son, Jesus Christ. And it compels us to offer our bodies, offer our whole selves to Him, to live for Him whom we love. And we continually remind ourselves and we remind each other of His unchanging truths. And then... We are able to say with Isaac Watts, who wrote hundreds of years ago, when I view, when I survey the wondrous cross, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great and glorious God, we are reminded of your great love that you would send your Son, Jesus Christ, to live for us, to die for us. We are humbled, Lord. And Lord, remind us that you love us not because we've earned it. It is by grace, it is by mercy that we are saved. May you change our hearts bit by bit And Lord, if some of us come this morning and we are broken, may you strengthen us. May you encourage us with your love and your truth. And as some of us, if we're wandering, if we're proud, may you humble us to sit at the foot of the cross. And may you bring us back so that we walk on the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.